When I was a boy, our family watched Candy Camera. I bet many of you did too. Sunday nights, CBS. Uh, you may remember Alan Font and his line. What was his line? Smile. You're on Candy Camera, right? Yeah. Uh, and I read about this in Mark Batterson's book, Play the Man. He wrote about an episode that I don't remember, maybe some of you do, a shot in an elevator with a hidden camera. So a person would enter the elevator and turn around like we all do and face the doors. And then three actors followed that person, but they didn't turn around. They walked into the elevator and they all faced the rear of the elevator. And so from the hidden camera, you could see the look on this guy's face, which was like, what, what is going on? Should I turn around too? And then a fourth actor would enter the elevator, and like the other three, he would face the rear. And believe it or not, every one of the unsuspecting victims then turned around and faced the back of the elevator. That's not like anyone told them to do it. No one said anything at all. There weren't any threats. There was just this pressure to conform that was too much for them. A generation ago, a famous study was done uh, by a college professor named Ash, sociologist, in which classes were shown a line on a board and then asked to pick one out of several other lines that matched it in length. And the, ob- the answer was patently obvious. A three-year-old could pick it out. But everyone in the room had been coached to point to the wrong line except for one student who was the subject of the study and had no idea that his classmates were complicit in this experiment. When the subject was alone in the room, 99% of the time he or she would pick the right line. But when the rest of the class was in the room pointing at the wrong line, 76% of the time the person would join the majority. Humans are by nature conformable. Now, that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Otherwise, we would have no hope of being conformed to the image of God's Son. Remember Romans 8.29? But in a world that's turned away from God, our conformable nature presents a potential threat to us of a serious nature. Now, you may say, well, I wouldn't have turned around in that elevator. And you can bet I'd be in the 24% of people who stuck to their guns despite what the rest of the group did. Well, that's great. But what if the situation wasn't so cut and dry? What if it were more subtle? What if it didn't feel like there was any choice to be made? Would you even notice? Back in 1999, NASA launched the Pathfinder expedition to Mars, and the media picked it up, and it was everywhere, TV, newspapers, radio. And guess what happened? The Mars company saw a big surge in the sale of its Mars bar the candy bar, a big surge, even though its marketing hadn't changed at all. Social scientists say that people respond to triggers, to subconscious thoughts that influence our likes and our dislikes, our choices and our actions. Our culture is full of such triggers, and we don't even know it. Researchers at University of Leeds in England studied those subconscious triggers in humans, and they wrote in in the when they published the study, the research suggests that humans flock like sheep and birds, subconsciously following a minority of individuals. They found it takes a mere 5% 
of so-called informed individuals to influence the direction of a crowd of up to 200 people. 200 people, 10 of them doing one thing, and the other 190 will do the same thing without even being aware of it. In secular culture, culture at large, those informed individuals, so-called informed individuals, are usually non-Christians, sometimes anti-Christians, in media, politics, and academia. These relatively few people have an incommensurate effect on what people eat, what they drive, how they dress, what music they listen to, how much money they think they need, their opinions on issues like sexual identity and orientation, and on and on. Now, here's where I'm going with this. If you and I aren't careful, and maybe even if we are, we'll be conformed to the pattern of this age, and we won't even know it. We will be squeezed into its mold, and our lives will look like everyone else's. But a Christian, follower of Jesus, is not meant to look like everyone else. Over a hundred years ago, Hannah Woodall Smith complained that for the most part, the followers of Jesus are satisfied with a life so conformed to the world and so like it in almost every respect that to a casual observer, there's no difference between the Christian and the pagan. That's over a hundred years ago. If the people who work with you, hang out with you, go to school with you, uh, belong to a golf league or a service club with you, don't recognize that you're different, don't know that you're a Christian, then chances are you've been squeezed into the mold. And you weren't even aware of it. You've been conformed. When John Stott was in India, I heard about a young Hindu girl and how she answered the question of what a Christian was. Somebody asked this girl, what do you think a Christian is? And she took a moment to think about it, and then she said, a Christian is somebody who is different from everybody else. That's pretty much our text today. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Listen especially as I read that second of those two verses. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy... To offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, this is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, better this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Do not conform any longer. Better, do not conform yourself or even do not let yourself be conformed. Passive voice verb. Paul is saying, get out of the mold while you still have time. He knows we are going to be conformed to something. We're conformable by nature, as one social science study after another has proved. We are in a confirmation process, you and me, right now, whether we know it or not. The question is, to what are we being conformed? To this world, to this age, or to the image of God's Son? One of them is happening. If it's to this age, we'll lose our joy, our hope, and our influence. If it's to this age, faith in Jesus will never seem to have the effect in our lives that scriptures lead us to expect. 
And we'll think that's just the way it is. If we're being conformed to this age, our best efforts at living the Christian life will be frustrated, and we won't know why. It's no wonder, Paul says, do not let yourselves be conformed to this age. It's spiritually toxic. The all-important question is, to what are you being conformed? We have to wonder, and this is the, the theologian from Ridley College, Melbourne, Michael Byrd. We have to wonder if many of our cozy middle-class values like security and mobility really matter all that much to God, or whether they have been imposed on us by our culture, and we've not only accepted them, but we've baptized them. We've made them holy. Whether you are conservative or progressive, he says, you have to keep asking whether your faith and practice are really conformed to a kingdom culture or whether you're being played for a pawn in someone else's game. I refuse to be played for a pawn in someone else's game. But I know there's only one way to escape. It's by being transformed into Christ-likeness. Now, prior to St. Paul, no one spoke about transformation like this. The philosophers, they talked about conforming oneself to the ideals, if they're Platonists, to reality, if they were Stoics. But the idea that a person could be transformed, could undergo metamorphosis, that's the Greek word that's used here, is something that no one said. To become a new creation, that hadn't dawned on people. It's only possible for us because God has broken into our age through the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Everything changed with him. Now, if, like me, you refuse to be a pawn in someone else's game, the only way out is to be transformed, and that process happens, verse 2, by the renewal of your mind. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself. Something needs to happen before your mind can be renewed. And so you want to, let me give you an illustration. So you want to transfer $1,000 from one account to another. The process involves writing a check or filling out a transfer of funds notice or something like that. It's pretty straightforward. But before you can do that, there needs to be $1,000 in your account. Otherwise, you go through all the steps of the process and fail utterly. That's how it is with the renewal of your mind. Something needs to happen first. That something is described back in verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. The therefore looks back to what we've already seen in previous chapters. And the light of the one who created the universe so magnificently, who gave us the freedom to walk away from him if we chose, but also the opportunity to come back. In light of the God who is so smart, so big, and so unlimited by time and energy constraints that he can make all things work together for good, the God who loved us and gave his only begotten son for us, in the light of all he's done for us, his mercies, it's really plural in the original language, we should offer our bodies to him. To try to be renewed in your mind, to think differently, before you've offered your body to God, will only frustrate you. Just as an orchid grows in tropical climates, but not in the frigid Midwest or not in the desert Southwest, the mind is renewed in one kind of atmosphere and not another. 
It is renewed in the atmosphere of a life that is dedicated to serving God. I'm talking about radical dedication to God's service. In that context, the mind can be renewed. Well, how do you present your life as a living sacrifice? Let me give you several suggestions. Do it thoughtfully. I mean, this is not something that you just throw off. Remember, it's because of God's mercies that we make this sacrifice. We do it because we believe it's the right thing to do and the best thing we can do. And because the God to whom we're offering our lives for service has already proven that he'll take care of us. Next, we present our bodies to God and not just our souls. You know, you listen to Christians talk, and sometimes it sounds as if all God wanted from us is some ethereal thing called our spiritual life. What is that? The Bible never talks about it. God doesn't want your spiritual life. He wants your life. He wants you to be available to him when you're at work, at home, at play. And that means giving him your body. You realize, don't you, you can't give yourself to anyone without giving him or her your body. Whether that God is, that someone is God or your spouse or your child or your boss. Not just your spirit, your body. The next thing to notice is that this sacrifice is living. That is, it is ongoing. I was talking to Kevin about this verse this week, and he mentioned that he knows of no other place in ancient literature that this terminology is used. Everyone, even little children, knew that sacrifices die. But God wants us alive. He isn't asking for one great, punishing, all-consuming sacrifice, after which we can do what we want. There is no after which. He wants our lives for the rest of our lives. When we're young, when we're old, forever. That's the only context in which the transforming renewal of our minds can take place. And how desperately we need that. Making that kind of sacrifice will end your life as a pawn in someone else's game. And begin your adventure of living for the awesome God about whom Paul has been writing. If you missed the last two weeks' sermons, you really should get a CD or listen online. They'll give context for what we're talking about today. This sacrifice will put you in the place where your mind can be renewed and you can be transformed. Notice I didn't say the place where you can renew your mind. You can't do this. It's not a self-improvement program. The Greek verb is in the passive voice, which means your mind is being acted upon, not performing the action. The renewal of your mind is the work of God's Spirit. This is the mind of the Spirit that's life and peace, which we talked about when we were in chapter 8. Escaping the mold into which this age will squeeze you and being renewed in your mind has benefits. Sometimes we think, well, I have to do this as a way of showing thanks to God. That's just a little picture, part of the picture. This, this has benefits. There's the life and peace of chapter 8 for people who are being renewed in their minds. Would you like that? But there's also the benefit mentioned here in verse 2. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. Over the years, people have come to me desperate 
and said to me, what should I do? I don't know what to do. What do you think? Is this God's will? They're wondering whether they should take a new job or move to a new home, get married, start a family, go to school, and they pray, but they're still not sure. And then they put out a fleece, some kind of, they devise a test for God, but they're still not sure. But Paul says here, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. Think about how great that would be. Like so many of God's people in the Bible, you would be able to prove what God's will is. Should you take this job? Should you give money to this person? Should you sell your house and move to another community? You could prove God's will, but there's a catch. This only happens when your body is a living sacrifice and your mind is being renewed. Now, you might think that that's too high a price to pay. I don't think many Christians would say so, but many Christians' lives betray their choice. If that's how you think, you need to understand that's how people think whose minds are not being renewed. You've been squeezed into the mold and simply can't see how good God's will really is. Many people, many Christians are afraid of God's will. They're afraid if they say, okay, God, whatever. I'll do whatever you want. God's going to send me to the mission field where I don't want to go. If I tell him, God will give me some disease if I tell him that I'll do his will. They expect his will to be too demanding, too austere, too little fun. In their minds, God's will is about sitting through an endlessly boring Sunday school class or spending every spare minute at church and always wearing a dour look on their faces. But the truth is, God doesn't want that any more than you do. And you'd realize that if your mind was being renewed. On the day Brennan Manon took holy orders in the Franciscan order, an old brother said to him, once you come to know the love of Christ. So this old monk said to this newbie, once you come to know the love of Christ, nothing else in the world will seem as beautiful or desirable. Those are the words of a man who's, who had escaped the mold, whose mind was being renewed. Look at what Paul says about God's will for you. It is good, pleasing, and perfect. You thought it was bad, disagreeable, and flawed. You thought God's will would mean giving up pleasure and excitement. But the most contented, joyful people I've known or have heard about were ones who have made considerable progress in mind renewal. Now, the ones I've known personally were, and I'll just be upfront about it, all past middle age. It seems to take most of us that long to give up on the empty promises of this age and start living for the next. But I don't think it has to be that way. Others have done it at a much earlier age. St. Paul referred to it in a letter to young Timothy as taking hold of the life that is truly life. It's the real thing. So, how do we apply this? How, how do we apply this to ourselves right where we are right now? I've already mentioned that we can't renew our minds, but that doesn't mean we can't do anything. It doesn't mean there's nothing for us to do. I can't paint a Rembrandt masterpiece to save my life, but if I'd been living in Amsterdam in the 1600s, I could have cut the canvas for the master. I could have mixed his paints. 
And just so, we can't renew our minds, but we can give God the materials to work with. We do that by the ideas and images we choose to take into our minds. And stories. Stories are profoundly effective in mind renewal. The best source of mind redoing ideas and images and stories is the Bible. So read, think about, and memorize the Bible. Hear and tell its stories. Five minutes a day is better than nothing, but five minutes a day is like giving Rembrandt a palette with just one color on it. If you're serious about transformation, you will work at increasing your time in the Bible. I can't think of anything that will help more. Secondly, read good books on Christian living. Read good books about anything. You can read good books about cooking or baseball or astrophysics because truth, wherever it comes from, is God's truth, and it will serve the mind renewal process. Watch good movies and TV shows. Listen to good music. Join a Bible study or a small group that reads the Bible. Sign up for some good preacher's podcast. Ask a friend to read the Bible with you. If you give God a full palette to work with, mind renewal will go at a much faster pace. There's the other side of this, though. Be careful of letting trash into your mind. Your mind is crucial to the transformation process. The Bible states that over and over again. Taking ideas and images and stories into it that are counter-Christian will interrupt the process. It's like taking viruses and malware into your computer. How it slows your processor. You'll slow the process. All right, one more thing. Don't get the cart before the horse. Everybody wants to know God's will. Oh, I want to know God's will. But being renewed in your mind comes first. We want to be renewed in our minds then, so that we'll know God's will. But presenting yourself to God as a living sacrifice comes before that. Okay, we'll be a living sacrifice, but trusting Jesus Christ and confessing him, Lord, comes first. If you haven't done that, that's where you begin. If you have done that, then it's time to present your body to God, a living sacrifice. How do you do it? I just mentioned two things right now, but we're going to continue this conversation next week because this section doesn't end until verse 8. I'm ending it today because of time, not because the Bible does. You want to offer your body a living sacrifice to God? Say to God what Jesus said. He was quoting Psalm 40. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. Think incarnation. A body you prepared for me. Then I said, here I am, and it's written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. Make a covenant with God to do his will, to serve him with your body. Here's my body, Lord, for your service. It may help you. I've done this. To get alone and prayerfully give your body to God. Your eyes, what you take in through your eyes, what you see, your ears, what you hear, your mouth, what you say, your hands, what you do, and all the rest of your body. It may take you an hour to do this. Don't rush it. Go through and actually give God all the parts of your body and then make a record of that transaction. If you have a journal that you use, put it there for future reference. After you've done that, affirm your decision from time to time, maybe yearly. 
New Year's is a good time to do that. Then take that yearly affirmation and make it a daily thing. When you first get up in the morning, before you start your day, tell God again you intend to keep your promise and place your body at his disposal. Perhaps it would be helpful to memorize that Hebrews 10, 5-7 passage. I've done that. I often recite part of it. A body you prepared for me. Here I am. I have come to do your will, O God. And one last thing. The decision to present your body as living sacrifice gets worked out in service to God's church. That's verses 3 through 8. The idea that you can prove God's will in isolation from his church is a fallacy. Jesus isn't producing lone rangers. He is building, Matthew 16, 18, he's building his church. Serving the church, it doesn't mean necessarily volunteering for programs within the church's walls. There are lots of other ways to serve. But it does mean working with, for, and as representatives of the church of Jesus Christ wherever you are. But more about that next week. Now let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this passage. Help us not to to think of this somehow in isolation from you, the God that we've been seeing is good and great and unimaginably powerful. Don't let us take this on as if it's just us. But help us to take this on, to take it seriously, to live this life, to see the world differently from other people because we see it like you do. Help us to escape the mold. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.